This is That So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. to that so second millennium this is episode 142 in this episode we are privileged to have matt swain from ewtn's sunrise morning show on our podcast so that was enormously fun because of course matt swain is a very uh, practiced and articulate uh, interviewer and of course he's he's also that translates over to being a very good interviewee the eucharist is our point of reference in this episode so we talk about what our culture that has so drastically lost even within, you know, the Catholic Church, the ability to deal with the reality of the Eucharist or the belief in the reality of the Eucharist, um, to really believe that there is something, yeah, real as opposed to symbols. Um, this idea that a symbol, um, as uh, Bill uses the idea later in the podcast, that a symbol is an example that you t- have twisted into supporting your own uh, mindset. That's, that's one of the ways that the concept of symbols can be abused. I mean, symbols are, they're, they're practically mandatory for the way that we think as human beings. Um, but that means that both good and bad and constructive and destructive and true and false thoughts can be, uh, can be expressed in terms of symbols. We talk a lot about, uh, Matt brings up a lot of examples from popular culture, from, uh, from comic books, from, you know, Marvel Universe movies, from, from so on, um, to talk about our, our really kind of empty, you know, we still have morality. We still have, we can't get rid of the, our foundations as human beings, but we can really do a profound job of forgetting why we believe in virtue, why we believe in courage, why we believe in self-sacrifice. Um, all these things that the Eucharist is the reality of, um, rather than merely being a symbol. Of course, something that I don't think we ever actually said during the interview, but that classic definition of what a sacrament is, you know, a, a reality that conveys the re- something that conveys a symbol that conveys the reality of what it's symbolizing. So with that, um, we will turn to the actual interview. And here is Matt Swain. I was just going to say, I mean, baseball is how I got into radio, right? Uh, By listening to baseball. And it's all about like carrying the history of the game. That's right. It's it's actually um, a a classic case of uh, uh, telling a story in real time without it being a narrative. Baseball isn't a narrative that's kind of pre-planned and digested. They have to kind of spin stories as they kind of occur. And baseball has the shocking thing that you don't have in any other sport. Well, you'll be listening even to a radio broadcast and just nobody will say anything for 15 seconds, 20 seconds. They'll just let you hear the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Just let you kind of absorb it. Right. Yeah. Um, As though you were as though it's the relationship is almost more important than the conversation. So, right. yeah, it's an interesting point. That's Radio right. allows for that in a way that television absolutely does not. So, yes, just staring uh, uncomfortably at people on the uh, yeah. screen is not not so much a thing. Not sometimes. the same thing. 
not the same thing. Radio is my first love for so many reasons. So many reasons. Grew up listening to talk radio on uh, New York City radio, where some remarkable uh, people did it remarkably well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why to this day, one of the most disappointing experiences a person can have is finally seeing in person uh, or, or finding a picture of the person they've listened to on the radio yeah. because it just like, oh, that's what they look like? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should go ahead and get the, the thing sort of for, semi-formally started, as formal as it's going to get, which is not very. Matt Swaim is the co-host of the Sunrise Morning Show, and that's Sun as in S-O-N, starting at 6 a.m. on weekdays on the EWTN National Network of Catholic Radio Stations. And he's on Cincinnati's local Sacred Heart Radio. And he also works with the Coming Home Network and does a great uh, podcast as a co-host of the On the Journey with Matt and Ken podcast. Am I right about that, Matt? Is that the way you're right enough? Fair enough. He's uh, (laughs) also the author of uh, an insightful book, um, A Prayer in the Digital Age, which came along uh, earlier in the digital age, but is very prescient for today. We can talk about that. So, Matt, it's great to talk with you and to uh, welcome you to our podcast and now to turn the tables by uh, interviewing you after I've been uh, uh, so appreciative of being interviewed by you on on such a great show. Congratulations and uh, glad to have you join us. Well, I got to say, Bill, this is going to be a little bit strange because I'm used (laughs) to being on the end asking you all the questions because of all the things that you've posted. Uh, We originally met when you were doing work with uh, – the Alliance for Catholic Education over at Notre Dame. That's right. And uh, of course, you're a veteran PR and media guy. So we kind of have talked about all kinds of stuff off the record and a few things on. Right. So especially since you started doing the onward uh, thing and media theory, I, man, I just think it's so relevant for so many reasons. So I'm oh, always, yeah. uh, always curious as to what you're cooking over there. So you, we sneak you onto the show every now and then. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you put you placed me amongst a very uh, noble uh, and notable company with some very good guests. So it, it really is a, a fun show, uh, along with your co-host Annie. Yes, Annie. Yeah, so Annie is uh, shout she's, out. To she's her. wonderful. So it's a, we try and cover all the bases, uh, as I like to say. I think I've you know even mentioned to you. Uh, we've when people ask what what it is that we talk about on the radio, I said we only talk about the stuff that. Uh, our Catholic faith can be applied to, which is literally mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> right. so, and the exceptions to that are... There are no exceptions. <laughs> there are no exceptions. It's beautiful exactly. that way. That's right. So, That's why we do this podcast for that matter. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so give uh, Paul and me a little bit more on your background, please, to start. Are you from Cincinnati originally? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm no, I'm from Vienna. So, okay, yeah. so I lived a little bit in uh, – I mean, I've hovered all around a radius in which that puts me in the uh, the fandom of the Cincinnati Reds everywhere I've lived. Ah, so very good. I, very lived, good. Yeah. I lived in uh, on the Indiana side of Louisville uh, for a little while growing up mm-hmm. uh, over in New Albany. Then I moved Albany. up um, – yeah, moved up. It was actually Floyd's – Floyd's Knobs. Floyd's Knobs. Yes. One of the great, so, great Indiana place names. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, moved out to Springfield, Ohio and spent a little time there. Um, so I'd been a Methodist in Indiana. I was a Nazarene when I lived in Ohio. And uh, <laughs> there was some some church splittiness that went on uh, that caused our family to just plain all relocate to Kentucky because, you know, 
when you're a Protestant and you lose your church, like that, you lose your whole like social thing. And, um, so I'm, I, but in that time I'd always loved, um, music. Um, I'd always loved, um, baseball on the radio and really just, you know, fell in love with, with radio specifically as a form of, of communication. I want to start my own, you know, Christian punk rock radio station. I remember listening to, uh, Excellent. Uh, you know, the, the church split made me lose my faith in a lot of um, evangelical kind of mainstream, polished consumer, you know, mega church Christianity. Not that I was ever in a mega church. Um, that term wouldn't come around until a little bit later. Um, but I remember listening to the contemporary Christian music station. And at Friday nights from seven to midnight, they had a DJ come on on this station. We were able to get out of Troy and uh, they would do nothing but the Christian rock and roll underground and I yeah. felt like these people are really digging into like, like during the daytime they're playing, like, you know, there's peace in the storm and, you know, Jesus is your, uh, you know, like yeah. good buddy. Who's going to help you with like positive uplifting thoughts. And then at night on Fridays, they'd be like, life is terrible. And fortunately Christ died for you in his blood, the blood of the cross. This guy, you know, like it was like the, the real meat, but it was like, I was listening to the Psalms, like put to, you know, yeah. music, like it was real, like, and, and there was something about that, you know, sort of real relational uh, aspect of media, um, as well as kind of like the real relational aspect of the baseball that I heard. Um, I went on to pursue media and uh, in the process, a lot of questions sort of came up about um, the nature of reality and the nature, the meaning of the incarnation. And those questions eventually led me to the Catholic Church um, and into Catholic radio. But uh, that's a very, very truncated account of the journey but i will say this that the incarnation and the questions posed by the meaning of the incarnation um really drove my have driven my whole media media life that's beautiful interesting yeah so uh last time we uh Saw each other on the radio, as they say. I, I think that was Charles uh, <laughs> Charles Osgood or somebody. See you on the radio. We talked about words and symbols as conveyors of uh, truth, and bemoan the fact that um, they don't always convey truth, and that we in society don't necessarily do that well in such conveyance. Uh, I won't. Um, I won't steal the question that has been famously asked or infamously asked. What is truth? <laughs> I think that's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's a, it's a great rogues gallery if people have asked that question. Oh, my Indeed. goodness, yes. <laughs> but what, what do you see as the challenges today in the conveyance of truth and in the way we converse in such a polarized society? Man. You got any easier questions? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean that that really How is. Did you like Joe Nuxall? I mean, really. <laughs> right. Yeah. The old left-hander. He would have had something to say about that. No. I mean that is that is the question of the age. Uh, the question of the age. Um, you know the the questions that have driven, uh, you know, all the great thought in the church over the centuries. Uh, you know, have been related to the three transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness, right? And um, most of the problems in the digital age have to do with, um, well, they say that like, you know, two out of three is not bad, but when it comes to truth, beauty, and goodness, two out of three can like mess you up pretty good, uh, sure. right? uh, pretty badly. Especially so, if the missing one is truth, yeah. Right. Or, I mean, or if the missing one's beauty. I mean, yeah, um, any of the three. Any of them. Yeah, yeah. So, 
and and I feel like there's so many themes, and and this is a temptation even in the church to get caught up in this stuff. Um, uh, you isolate beauty out, you take truth and goodness out of the picture, and suddenly the depiction of like a beautiful body, right, is no longer connected to truth and goodness, and suddenly you've got pornography, right? right. Yeah. Um, you take truth and you isolate it from goodness and beauty, and suddenly it's just you're a Pharisee. Right. Mm-hmm. You're not yeah. you're not communicating beauty. You're not communicating even like your responsibility to, um, you know, act in goodness toward your neighbor. Right. It's just like this is right. This is wrong. And if you don't believe the right, then you're an idiot. <laughs> and right. You deserve the hell that you're destined for. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, or goodness. Right. And Pope Francis has talked about this in a number of uh, forums. Right. Um, you separate truth and beauty away from goodness. And it's just social work. Right. Um, yeah. At best. Yeah. At, at, at best and sometimes not even that right and the same thing with all those other you know the other categories of, of truth and, and beauty you ends up not being really truthful at the end of the day ends up not being really beautiful at the end of the day yeah. um so i mean i think that that's uh, you know part of the part of the challenge and this this happens i mean you could trace it to any number of places um a handy and convenient but uh, incomplete way to trace it is to t- head back to the, inf- the to the Protestant Reformation, right? Yeah, and the um, the assertion that Martin Luther makes uh, when he's read and gotten his particular take on the scriptures and says, "I don't, I'm not really interested in what the previous 1,517 years worth of people have had to say about this. Yeah, I'm interested in what I feel this says, right? And yes. so when he stands and says. Here I stand, I can do no other. Um, you know, he assumes that everybody who's right and smart will think like him. He doesn't really think about the implication that everybody who sees that example says, oh, I can do that same thing to Martin Luther. And, you yeah. know, so his students do the same thing to him. But what what's, you know, one of the first battles that Luther fights once he opens that door is that all these people – this is a this is a much more complicated answer, by the way, than I intended to give you. But one of one of the first doors that opens is that Luther finds himself fighting with his students and fighting with all these other people who see the door open to their interpretation. And yes. what's one of the first battles that takes place? It's a battle over the meaning of the Eucharist. Um yeah. and immediately you've got Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and a whole bunch of others debating. What is this thing that happens at the middle of mass? Like, what right. is it? And Luther's not ready to give up on it and say it's just a symbol, yeah. right? But immediately, so many of his interlocutors are, and it all came down to that idea of I'm I get the authority to say what is and isn't going on here. And one of the first victims of that in the Reformation was the Eucharist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Luther, by the way, made Zwingli cry uh, at one of these council <laughs> meetings because um, Zwingli was coming in and saying, oh, it's just a symbol. And Luther's like, it is not. I think he like slapped his shoe on the table or something and just like oh, right. yeah. berated Zwingli to pieces over this because Zwingli wanted to say it was a symbol. But that was one of the first battles of the Reformation among the reformers. It's wild. So it's nothing new that the discussions about the Eucharist should open up a lot of doors for conversation that could go very right or very wrong. Yeah. Go on. I was about to say, you, you fast forward, add 500 years of, of distance from that. And, you know, with, with every generation that has less experience of that, um, you know, and pushes it just a little bit farther down, like, you know, 
I mean, it's just subjectivity upon subjectivity upon subjectivity to where like, we don't know who we are as human beings. We don't know what human being is. We don't know any of that stuff. Right. Right. Um, it's, it's amazing what I wouldn't have ever put it this way as a Protestant because I grew up without ever having the Eucharist, but it's amazing how once you lose the reality of the Eucharist, like how many other realities fall like dominoes afterwards. Um, it's a wild thing to trace it through history. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and very the much the world that we inhabit. Yeah. Now, connected to that, we we talked last time about the Pew Research poll that said two thirds of Catholics say the bread and wine consecrated at Mass are only symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. So uh, that caught the attention of the bishops, and they're very concerned about this. And you've talked with a lot of people about solutions which include the national eucharistic revival that's starting up what what do you see as either some of the big issues emerging or hopefully some of the solutions what's promising about the revival uh, just as what's negative about what's the um finding the conflicts um, can we just fast forward? Can I pass on like the next 10 questions? Cause I feel like you're just going to have me solve the entire church in this. And I just don't know how I'm going to do it. We only right. have a half hour to solve the church problems. Uh, right. I mean, <laughs> so in, in some ways um, I'm not like other people who go on radio shows. Uh, I actually don't have an answer. <laughs> right. Uh, um, I can't give you policies. I can't give you much. Um, I will say this. I do know what I do have some power and control over and um, it's the people who live in the same house as me. Hmm. You know, I think that that's part of um, why this thing has gotten so wildly out of hand in the first place uh, is because, you know, for generations there was this trust that, um, you know, everybody believed it because we believed it because we believed it, um, you know, and then we trusted the church to kind of, train the next group and it just the whole i mean you used to live in neighborhoods where everybody in the neighborhood was a catholic right and you'd see them all (laughs) church now we don't have that right i live in maryland and i they're probably like eight religions represented on my block um yeah so 10 families maybe right exactly um well actually i take that back i'm in maryland actually nobody here believes in god but (laughs) um but that being said you know in some sense a Eucharistic revival is a great thing. Um, I've already heard in my own parish, my pastor using opportunities um, that he might not have previously used, right? That, I mean, you could preach about the Eucharist based on like, no matter what the first and second reading are, the Psalm and the gospel, there's always an opportunity to tie in something about the Eucharist. And I know my pastor has already been, I don't think he's doing it because he's trying to check a box for the bishops either. I just think that, you know, it's on his, yeah. it's on his it's radar on, a little bit more. And that's, I think, a, yeah. Um, a, a positive thing. But again, I mean, our families, there's a reason that the catechism talks so clearly about parents as the first educators of their children, right? Because, I mean, that's where all the most important stuff happens in your formation is is in that context of the people that you, you're you born into. Um, so I think for me, it's been a, a you know, a reminder to, 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 to try and do a better job of my own home. Um, there's only so much I can control for, for other people, but, um, you know, I can't help but look at it through the eyes of my own 
you know, conversion as well. And thinking about um, why, what my life was like for 25 years with no Eucharist in it and thinking about, you know, my own appreciation that continued to grow and, and a hunger that developed in me and, and trying to go back and, and, and relive some of those moments of discovery um, where the light bulbs went off for me and think to myself, well, how do I give that to somebody else? And this is not to knock the bishops, right? Or not to knock priests or catechists or RCIA classes, but almost none of those moments came uh, because I got a flyer for a uh, diocesan program on evangelization. Like, actually, I would say zero of those moments came that way. They came from like reading a Flannery O'Connor book and like putting it down and being like, huh. Well, if that's true, then maybe this other thing is true and this other thing is true. And then the thing, you know, four steps down is true too. Um, I think one of the the hardest parts of evangelization is allowing something in the process that God allows us. And I have no idea why he does this, but he he gives people kind of a little bit of a, a leash, to, a long leash to figure things out themselves. Um, and I, I don't know. That's, yeah. Um, that's something that I'm trying to, to figure out exactly. Like what, what does that look like? I mean, how do I listen? How do I, um, pay attention to what's going on in a conversation so that I can allow the person on the other side to, to see something and feel, I mean, not just feel like they're discovering it on their own, but, but like actually be kind of discovering it. Um, yeah. on their own because I, I feel like the the impulse is to want to fight that battle for somebody and just give somebody the packaged answer but yeah. part of the reason that the eucharist means so much to me is because of the battle that i went through to come to realize the reality of the eucharist and i mean i hate to be like this but like there's a difference between like a cake that you made right? And a cake that you bought from the store. <laughs> I yes. mean, this is like, this, yeah. this is like a dumb and simple analogy, but there's a difference between those two things. And one of them, you, one of them tastes better, even if objectively it doesn't taste better. One of them tastes better because you made it. Right. If you know what I'm saying. You know exactly what work went into it. You've seen right. every last detail of the process. Yeah. Aesthetically, it's not as good, right? But it's but you were there for the process, right? You you put something of yourself into it, which oddly enough is very Eucharistic when you think about it, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> because the Eucharist is what, right? God creates the whole process by which life uh, is able to exist. Um, we then take that process and insert ourselves into it to water and cultivate the grain and the grapes we then use our own processes that we've come about to turn those into bread and wine we then take them and give them back to god right mm -hmm. at mass he then through the hands of the priest turns them into his own body and blood gives them back to us right and then we go mm -hmm. out in the world with it it's a it's not like you go into kroger and you buy the eucharist you know right? what i'm saying thank god yeah um yeah yeah. So something of figuring out how to get people invested in that process that, I mean, that's not a solution. That's not a policy, but I feel like it's a principle that's important in this process. Yeah. 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 And if, if Catholics aren't affirming the realness, the trueness 
of the Eucharist, among others. They're not giving people a chance to let God give them the faith in it and to see the beauty of truth, etc. And we're really missing an opportunity, as you say, not only for ourselves, but for others. We, we really have to somehow organically appreciate what uh, what the Lord is doing amongst us. Yeah. And, and I think that too is um, not that we should be, you know, demonstrative about what, you know, is going on with us at mass. I mean, this is not like uh, a chance to show off our piety, but I, I mean, I do remember um, as I was wrestling with the reality of, is this, you are not Lord um, as I was coming into the church and uh, you know, you go into some of these masses and I'm like, if it is you, nobody seems to notice, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. like if this is, you know, when the priest elevates the, the consecrated host and says, behold the lamb of God, like if that's you, like I shouldn't be on my knees. I should be on my face. Right. And everybody's right. like, it's like being in line at the DMV or something, uh, you mm. know, going up. Um, and, and yeah. I'm not saying that we have to like, you know, put on some show of false piety, but uh, in some ways that's another one of those few things that I can control. Right. I yeah. can control um, the way that I approach the Eucharist. Right. I can control um, the way that I conduct myself when I get back in, into the pew, right? If I'm looking around to see like, oh, it looks like so-and-so is here. I should talk to you know, them afterwards. You know, like you're, you're watching the line to see who all is here that you know. Like, it, then it's just another, it's like going to a baseball game or something, right? Yeah. Um, but I can control like, uh, you know, are my eyes closed? Am I using that, those, that, that incredible moment after I've just received Christ through the hands of a priest who is touched by a bishop all the way back to the apostles. And here he is with us right now. Like if am I taking that moment afterwards to reflect and honestly, is my son seeing me take that moment or is he seeing me looking around? Um, yeah. There's, there's, there's little things that, you know, again, when I was coming to the church and looking around thinking like, why am I being compelled to believe this? And here's the, here's the controversial part. Why am I being forbidden to go partake in it as an outsider when it seems like these people on the inside believe it less than I do right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, why am I not being allowed to go up? It feels like I believe more about the reality of the Eucharist than the people who are going up for communion. Why am I? Why? Why is? Why can't I just go up? Because I think I, I think I believe more than these people do. Of course, I wasn't confirmed yet, and there's a reason that the church gives that I can't go up yet. Right at that right. at that moment in my life, but. But it is, it is a real question. Like, do, would people walk into our church and be like, oh, my gosh, these people believe? Um, or or what do they believe about us when they see us? Um, yeah. It would help to, uh, have, to have people, again, kneeling, perhaps, at the altar as they receive, perhaps, as one body language way of, of describing yeah. the faith, huh? reflecting the faith. Yeah, unfortunately, it, you know. A lot of the mechanisms that, you know, make that (laughs) an easy thing to do or, or a, uh, I wouldn't even say an easy thing to do, but a, um, a common thing to do have kind of been removed from the churches or not even built into the, to the the more modern churches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, we have the parish church out here at the at the college, um, the the one in town. They actually bring out these like big red like pads that are you know ten feet long or something for people to kneel on, um, to sort of make an ad hoc communion rail. It's yeah, it's it's a it's a piece of symbolism that's been lost. And of course, the communion rail is not a be all and end all. To you know, no, no, you're not gonna solve all the problems no. uh, with. You can by do putting that. that in, but you know, Lex Arati, Lex Credendi, man, like the way you pray, uh, forms you. Um, yes, it really does. And you know, there there are all kinds of things you could do about the reception of communion. I'm I'm sure. Uh, you know, even something as simple as, uh, you know the 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 way that we conduct the music at mass. Um, it, yeah. it's interesting. There's there's been a lot of ways that people have tried to increase participation that have actually limited participation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and not just participation outwardly, but also, uh, interiorly, like you open it up to where I feel like I'm going to go like super ratzinger here. And I don't mean to, um, <laughs> actually I kind of do mean to, um, but that's, but, that's okay. Yeah. There's, you know, for instance, the, the idea, um, that many people had of like increasing participation at mass, all right. Was thinking like, which maybe if we have more people involved than just the priests and the altar servers, then maybe people will get more like engaged. Well, in reality, what happens is you have like the three extroverts in your parish doing all the readings, right? Yeah. <laughs> doing all the everything's, yeah. and the people who want to be up in front of the mic and in front of the camera are going to be like jumping up, and they were going to get involved in something anyway, yes. right? So it doesn't increase. And there's this also weird phenomenon like. Um, I don't have scientific proof of this. It's just my anecdotal, like hip shot observation. And that is the more people you have in like the praise band, the less people you have singing in the congregation. Oh, Absolutely. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's like scientific, but it feels like, oh, they're doing the work for us up there. Um, right. I have found, and believe it or not, uh, well, this is anecdotal, but I, w- I will put this to the test. Go to anywhere where there is absolutely no musical accompaniment. Mm-hmm. And listen, and I bet you like there's like a thousand percent more active participation of the responses than there is if you were like, you know, play the Gloria with like a little keyboard, like 80 yeah. cent keyboard or something. I, I don't know that these are fixes. Um, they're not fixes in like any like do this one thing and it's over and we fix the problem with like, you know, Eucharistic belief in the church. But I do think that, you know, honestly, uh, so many of the ways that we think about um you know, how do we get more people involved? Uh, end up oddly enough, having an opposite effect. Like I'm, I'm in my early forties, you know, I come from kind of a rock and roll background and, you know, I mentioned my distaste for like the contemporary Christian scene that's designed specifically to reach me. Right. right? That's the reason that's, this is a stated reason that we have like the, you know, the synth and the choruses and like the, you know, the stuff that sounds like, you know, listen at work classics or like a Kleenex commercial from like 1984. There's the reason that that the stated reason that that stuff is like the musical like uh, theme of 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 these liturgies is that they're like, we want to reach the, you know, the people, you know, in this particular demographic. Like, that's me. And I'm like, and it leaves you yeah, cool. man, it, 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 it does. Um, in some sense, I feel like I've walked into an elevator or I, you know, I just, I think part of, part of it is that we haven't done a good enough job of like showing 
you know, not just the world, but ourselves that like when you're walking into the doors of your church and there's a mass going on, this is different than any other place that you will yeah. walk into in any other aspect of your life. Yeah. Um, in some sense, we've picked up a, a habit from the Protestants that works well for them, but it only really works well for them in short term bursts. And that is um, the idea of reducing cognitive dissonance between the various aspects of your life. So if you go into like a Protestant megachurch, they want it to seem like a seamless transition from you going from Target to Starbucks yeah. to church, right? Yeah. To where there's not like a shock to your system to where it, it feels like comfortable mm-hmm. the second you walk in. And the church, you know, shouldn't be a place where you walk in and you'll be like, yeah, this feels nice. But it should be a place <laughs> where you walk in and you'll be like, my God, have mercy on me. I'm a a sinful yeah. man and I come from a sinful people, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a man, not a man of unclean lips. Yes. Right. Exactly. I come from a people of unclean lips. Like, yes. um, I am in the presence of almighty God. There is a shame for my sin and an over a sense of being overwhelmed by the beauty of the God that waits for me here. Like, yeah. um, instead it's more like, I don't know. Um, like a YMCA or a you know, yeah. hotel conference room or something. Um, yeah. We could do better. We can Jeez. do better. Yeah. Yeah. Is this what you invited me on to talk about? I'm not really actually sure if I'm answering any of your questions. Oh yeah. No, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> <This is good. laughs> uh, Did you have other questions about the, the Eucharist Paul or about, I mean, you know, I want to tie, tie this discussion somehow to, you know, what modern culture at least professes to have faith in, which is science, which is of course the subject of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we talked about the transcendentals earlier about truth, goodness, and beauty. And of course, you know, modern, you know, post, you know, so the, the reformation happened and, you know, destroyed Christendom and then amid the ashes of that, you know, people look at each other in the 18th century and think, you know, this religion stuff is really crap anyway. It just makes people fight with each other and there's no proof for any of it. Um, oh, good. Now that we got rid of the religion, it's good to see we're not fighting anymore. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's just like, I mean, so there's, yeah, you can look at the 20th century like, you know, as a matter of fact, atheism can and has killed more people than religion, just so you know. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, just contemporary politics, I have, you know, a lot of, you know, fairly leftist friends from my time in college, people who are very dear to me, who I don't agree with on certain things, but it's like, you know, complaining about the religious right back in the nineties or, you know, two thousands, the, you know, the W era, like people, wait till you get a load of the irreligious right. (laughs) Um, well, I live in DC and let me tell you that if you think godless, uh, liberalism is scary. Uh, godless conservatism is a terror to behold. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It sure is. Yeah. Um, because again, godless conservatism. I mean, think about all the things that conservatism is known for, and now take out all the obligations to love your neighbor. Right. <laughs> right? Take Any out reminder all the, of that whatsoever. Yeah. Right. All that stuff. Um, yeah. Or even on the on the uh, irreligious right. Uh, at least at the federal level, all kinds of questions about humanity and marriage that have used to be really important are not only not important, they're like kind of mocked in private circles. So, yeah. 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 I mean, 
you know, listening to, you know, the libertarians who are quote unquote, sort of on our side, quote unquote. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're a hundred percent on board with, you know, that they're kind of maybe a little queasy about abortion because, you know, there is a person whose rights are being very much. Yeah, but they're completely fine, but they're completely fine with sterilizing. Oh yeah. Um, uncool populations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, it's just, yeah. I mean, we I think mean, about how much we've, I mean, it, it takes so little removal from, from the reality of the Eucharist. It, it, I mean, this is, this is one other aspect of it too. If it's just a chance for us to get together with our, you know, families that we want to see, that's, that's, that's one thing, but are, are we getting the message of what the Eucharist is? Right. Um, yeah. And, and how it, it breaks all the categories. If you go to a Protestant church, all the ones that I went to growing up, um, it was always the people who um, were the same socioeconomics as me, often the same race as me, um, yeah. people who uh, bought the same kind of stuff and shopped at the same stores as I did, wore the same kind of clothes, uh, listened to the same kind of music. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all been going to the same church that featured that kind of music. Right. Um, all people who are kind of demographically similar. And the Eucharist is like, all the baptized people in your geographical realm, <laughs> they're no. going to come from different countries. They're going to have different ability levels. Like in a Protestant church, like, you know, you're not handicapped accessible or, or, you know, something like that. Well, uh, somebody's going to go find another church in a Catholic church. It's not like, I mean, people of all age and ability can go up. I mean, the the bar for membership at a lot of Protestant churches I grew up in is, can you come down to the altar and kneel? The bar for, you know, participation at the Catholic churches, can somebody will you up, right? Can the pastor come back to your pew and administer the Eucharist to you? Um, I mean, these are, can somebody take it to you after mass? Right. Can somebody go to your hospital? You've not been out of your bed for months, possibly years. Right. And now you're locked in. Are we getting the message of what the Eucharist like really is? Um, Because, if it's just a symbol, then why does it matter that, you know, the deacon is going up and getting a blessing and spending his afternoon driving 20 miles up the road to the nursing home? Yeah. Like, if it's just a symbol, why does that matter? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. And then and modern culture is so conflicted about its about its commitment to materialism. Because materialism is ultimately a dead end that no one, no one really believes in. I mean, you, there, there are people at the hardcore philosophic end of the spectrum who attempt to, and they probably live really miserable lives to the extent that they're really seriously trying to attempt to. Because that means life has no meaning whatsoever. Um, it's, it's just whatever I'm deluding myself into enjoying for the moment as the dance of my you know, electrons across my gray matter you know makes me feel like i'm doing this or that but what is what is doing this feel like i mean it's just it's it's a, it's ultimately baseless and no one can really sustain that belief for any length of time but 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 it does enough damage to be like well i mean because what's a symbol in a materialist paradigm what even is a symbol what does what sense no, it, does that even you make? can't ultimately you can't have symbolism in a purely materialist paradigm or at least the only things that you can symbolize are other material things. At best, right? yeah. Because um, a symbol, I mean, ultimately, so it, it, we're so used to thinking about symbols in a in an advertising saturated age that we always think about them, you know, kind of 
well, we don't we don't understand that there are gradations and levels and uh, of symbols, right? Yeah. Um, you know, even an idea isn't really like a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so um, to to say that we have an idea is really saying that we're attaching some kind of a meaning to the synapses and the chemical reactions in our brain. But even something like, I mean, how can you even say what love is, right? Or how can you right. even say what hope is? Or how can you say what faith or, I mean, obviously faith is, you know, even people, materialist people don't usually say stuff about faith, but um, justice, like how can you, yeah, like how can you say what justice is? Yeah. Because you you're having anything. Yeah. This is like an issue in – and I just had a great conversation about this in relation to the, the Marvel Universe. Okay. Um, so there's there's all kinds of struggles within the Marvel Universe to try and – well, in a post-Thanos age, like try and figure out you know, what it is and where its moral compass is. Um, and what's interesting is that so many people just like gravitate and flock to the Marvel Universe because there's this desire for a shared mythology – that we all mm -hmm. speak the language of, right? Because Christendom's okay. gone. So we all got to speak the language of like something, yeah. right? Or the Mandalorian, right? We like all got to yeah, know exactly. who Baby yeah. Yoda is as a culture so that we can right. have this shared mythology. Like, um, yeah. But within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like there is no God. Increasingly, the gods that are shown or the um, ultimate realities that are shown are shown to be either corrupt or petty or whatever and yet it still wants to say something about how you should behave morally in this universe or multiverse it still wants to say something about it but it doesn't really have any grounds for saying like why you should be good like right. so you don't come off like an a-hole like is that the ultimate reason to be a good person so that you know people yeah. don't think you're terrible like right. if that's the case if you're doing it for other people's esteem then yeah. You got a short window of time, man. Like, why are you want to focus so much on other people's esteem when you could be having what you want? Like, right. that's not a good argument. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you want to be thought well of? Like, why does it matter what people think about you after you sacrifice yourself to fight some bad guy? Like, who? Yeah. Like, what? What's the payoff for you, man? Right. Like, you're you're worm food. Why does it matter? They put up a statue of you. Like, why right. does it matter? Uh, you blipped out of existence. That statue's not you. It's not even necessarily a symbol of you. It's just a reminder that you were there at one point, um, yeah. right? Yeah. Very different from the way that we like think about statues in like Catholic churches, right? Uh, if yeah. you're a materialist, what's the point of a statue at all? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really a reversion to the pre-Christian. I mean, it is so much like Imperial Rome where, you know, the elites, how much faith did the elites really have in the rights that they were conducting, that they were, you know, elected to these, you know, offices to put on their resumes, put on their res guest eyes and, you know, say, yeah, I was a Pontifex Maximus, eh. you know, but there's a statue of me in the forum, you know, yep. that's nice, I guess. <laughs> you're immortalized you, now? You know, are you going to live in the statue? What kind of life is that, terms, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The love of glory, but yeah. What good's the glory, dude? Like, yeah. if you're not, if you don't exist to soak it in, <laughs> right? What's the point? I was thinking about the uh, uh, Marvel Universe connection because I was watching 
Spider-Man No Way Home just the other night. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it uh, thrilled my heart as an old Spidey fan reading those 12-cent comic books growing up. And one of his mottos is, with great, respons- with great power comes great responsibility. And you really do feel that sense of responsibility emoting from Peter Parker and Spider-Man. But it, it occurred to me, responsibility to whom and to why, right? Yeah. Says you, kind of, you kind of know that Peter Parker does feel something that's uh, more important than himself, but on what basis? And really, uh, he w- he became his own trinity, in a sense, during yes, that. Yes, he did. Yeah. Spoiler alert. I was wondering if you, guys, you said Spider-Man singular, so uh, ah, yeah. there you go. Spider-Man. Yes, but it just seemed as though we have to ask, you know, who are we responsible to? And as you say, we have to ask why. Yeah. Well, but but part of that also comes from, um, you know, in some ways, there's like a, you know, in our culture, we have like a lot of Judeo-Christian like hanging on pieces, uh, even though it's not necessarily connected to everything. Like there's that, that desire to be good or even like the idea that the universe is intelligible and like we can trust our senses as we go to do science, like those are Christian ideas, <laughs> right? <laughs> like science does not necessarily tell us by itself without a philosophical and moral framework that we can be able to trust our senses. As a matter of fact, there's all fields of philosophy saying that you can't trust your senses. Um, it's Christianity that tells us we can trust this. So there's like these vestiges that sort of hang on and, and, and make their way into politics and into science. Uh, but it's similar kind of in the Marvel universe because uh, the, kids who came up with Spider-Man and started those comics all those many years ago were Jewish kids, Mm, right? And they were part of a great story. Um, Judaism, I mean, it, even people who have lost their faith in God hold on to that story within Judaism. I mean, there's, there's, it's sort of carried forth and there is sort of like a moral weight, if nothing else, um, a responsibility to the people who came before you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when, when Peter Parker Here's from Uncle Ben or Aunt May with great power, crumps great responsibility. That Jewish faith that's formed that is the same Jewish faith in which Jesus Christ was born yeah. and went on to say in the Gospels to him, to whom much is given, much is required. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Straight yeah. out of the Bible. Right. right? Um, it's, a, it's a milieu of, of faith that allows for that kind of thinking to come out. Yeah. You, you, you mess all that up and you, you know, you remove it. I mean, it's one of the issues that the, the Marvel universe is dealing with is like, you know, you, you introduce all these kind of characters and storylines that make it seem like nothing matters. Well then how do you then go back and watch Captain America, the first Avenger and see Steve Rogers, skinny Steve Rogers, pre-transformation diving on a grenade. Like what is it? Can you still root for that? Like, does it matter? Yeah. I mean, we all read it. People who don't believe in God, people who would say this world is entirely material, we're like, yes, yeah, Steve, like that kid should be Captain America, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, but it, you take all the materialism and and use that, uh, you know, as your as your framework. You cut out all the meaning. Like, does it matter that Steve jumped on the grenade? Does it matter? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We we actually are God's children. Every last human being, we actually are of course God's we creation. Are. 
we actually have these rules written into our psyche, into our souls, into our bodies, into our flesh. We can't actually get away from it, although we try to pollute and damage and diminish it as much as we can. We can't get away from it. Thank God we can't actually get away from it. Yeah. And even though, and to come back to the whole symbolism question, Steve's act of heroism is merely symbolic. It does mean something because we are human beings who are wired to understand in every fiber of our being that you know, greater love hath no man than he laid down his life for his friends, right? We see that um, in the heroism of Steve Rogers. Uh, we're wired to see that in the cross, but before we were ever wired to see that in the cross, we were wired to see that through the way that the human race continues, which is through a mother and a father sacrificing to bring a child into the world, right? Um, and that's one one other way that the mass kind of like shows us how this all works, right? Because we're wired to to see in the way that the mass is completely set up, right? We through the it's the fruit of the earth and the work of human hands, right? It will become our spiritual food. It will become our spiritual drink. That there's like something that we gave of ourselves um, in this process, right? The, the mass recognizes that we unite our sacrifice. We bring our offerings, we bring our goods, we unite them to the perfect sacrifice, and then it's given back to us. That's just how human beings are wired. And the mass is just like the key that unlocks unlocks that whole picture. Um, it's the story of what it means to be a human being. It's a it's basically a 45-minute story of what it means to be a human being every Sunday, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Or an hour, depending on how long your pastor preaches. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you're lucky, an hour 15. Well, it depends. You may not be lucky if it's an hour 15. <laughs> Is he a good preacher? <laughs> That's what matters. The one I had in mind when I first said that was, but there have been others. There have been others, but yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of that um, incident recently in Indianapolis, I think, a mall where uh, this, uh, this uh, gentleman who was legally packing a gun uh, disarmed or shot uh, a person who had uh, started firing on innocent uh, people right there in the mall. And something like that, that is clearly not symbolic, but actual and remarkable and heroic, jumps you know jumps out at people and it, it resonates with people but no sooner have we experienced that moment of truth so to speak no sooner have we done that than the pundits and everybody starts placing overlaying symbols on well this is a symbol of somebody who uh, you know or it's a symbol of our need for either disarmament or more guns it's a symbol of carelessness or this or that. And it seems that the whole world is just so preoccupied with symbols and doesn't really know often how to deal with the hard truths or even the amazing truths. Yeah, it's the milkshake duck phenomenon. Are you familiar with this? No. Uh, so <laughs> I can't remember who even coined this phrase. Um but it's uh, it's basically the milkshake duck phenomenon. It's like somebody posts on Twitter um, this cute picture of a duck drinking a milkshake, and then people pass it around, and then suddenly somebody uncovers the backstory of this duck, and it turns out the duck is a huge racist. 
so like now everybody feels terrible about like the fact that they were like promoting this thing because and but what that what that speaks to is a a hermeneutic of suspicion right yeah the second that somebody does something interesting or good or true or or altruistic or heroic or performs an act of service or piety it you don't want to like cheer that because next thing you know you might have a milkshake duck on your hands Mm. and then We'll all look back at you. You were the guy, Bill Schmidt, who mm. went to promote this horrible racist duck, right? right. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's you see what I'm saying. Like, um, it it breeds a hermeneutic of suspicion, and it also the hermeneutic of suspicion like really ties into kind of one of the you know baser desires, and it, it really ties back to the the sin of Lucifer. Lucifer doesn't create anything. Right. Right. He only looks at the world and says, not good enough for me. (laughs) Right. That's that's essentially what Lucifer does. Right. God, you have a plan. Not good enough for me. Not good enough for me. Um, And if I can't be happy, nobody can be happy. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's that's kind of kind of how it how it plays out. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I hate to be like a, I mean, I'm going to be like a 1980s satanic panic guy, but like, I feel like it all comes back to Satan, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that first impulse of like, never, it, nothing is good enough for me. Nothing is good yeah. enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of people now, including relatively secular authors, et cetera, pundits, they're remarkably now talking more about all our cultural and social problems as having an obvious uh, spiritual warfare dimension. They might not use those terms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at it, you know, the sower of discord, the father of lies, the, you know, whatever title. I mean, obviously somebody fitting that description is out and about because look at this, you know, Mm -hmm. look at this environment. Well, think back. I mean, I feel like this is going to be the, your your comic book episode of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but if you go back and watch The Dark Knight, um, the second movie in the uh, Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, I mean, it was so um, brilliant and chilling the way that the Joker was depicted because the Joker was depicted as really true satanic evil. Because mm-hmm. what does the Joker want? Um, the, I mean, they throw a big pile of money in front of the Joker after robbing all these places. And... What's he do? He sets it on fire, right? Yeah. Because he doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about any goods. All he wants is chaos. He is yeah. banking, and not to spoil the end of it for those who haven't seen it, he is banking on the fact that a person is more likely to look out for themselves than for their neighbor, right? It backfires on him because human beings, for whatever reason, um, have the – I'll say it's because they're made in the image of God, <laughs> right? right? But for whatever reason, um, are – are are better than that at the end of the day and and they can't even necessarily explain to themselves why they were better than that at the end of the day uh but the joker is he he cannot be happy at anyone else's happiness he must tear down all he wants is chaos right as morgan freeman's famous line says some people just want to watch the world burn Mm. Um, and and that's what satan his game plan is and whether or not people are actively possessed by the devil. I don't think you have to be actively possessed by the devil to adopt no. a terrible mindset. <laughs> right. No. No. Um, yeah. 
But I thought that movie just did a, such a good job of, of portraying what that looks like when it plays out in reality. Yeah. Um, in some senses. So this is how, you know, so many of the sins and Thomas Aquinas talks about this. Um, so many of the sins are desiring a good, but desiring it with the wrong intention or desiring it um, disproportionately like gluttony, like you need food to survive. But gluttony is like when you like outsize the need or, you know, greed, you need goods to be able to support your family. But what happens when that desire gets outsourced, you know, same thing with lust, like the love between a man and a woman, right. Is necessary for marriage and the continuation of, of life, you know, in the human family, what happens when you take that desire and, you know, mess around with it. Um, but the one that doesn't really have like a correlation like that is envy, right? Um, envy is the one that's sorrow at another person's happiness, right? Or, uh, or, or satisfaction at another one, another person's misery. Um, there's a, you know, a great image, an older image of envy of like, a uh, envy as like a withered old woman looking up the hill at a bunch of beautiful women while eating her own heart, right? Like the whole eat your own heart out image, right? Um, It's just misery at another person's um, happiness or prosperity or success or joy. I mean, there's not really like a positive (laughs) way to spin envy. (laughs) Jealousy is like, you should want goods, right? And so, I feel but bad jealousy because is this like, person has a good that I have, that I want, right. that I don't have. They have this good. I want it for myself, you know, but envy is, yeah. That, envy is like, I could never have that good. I just want to see it taken away from that person. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like this is why people get excited when uh, famous people have terrible things happen to them. Like I could never actually be famous myself. Right. But boy, do I get a kick out of it when somebody who's famous, like has something terrible happened to them. Has, or has like the milkshake duck thing happened to them. Right. They, they become the milkshake duck and ha ha ha. Yeah. 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 That's now called hate watching, right? You, you watch yeah. something. Shade and Freud or whatever you call it. The, uh, Shade and Freud is the German terms. The Germans got a word for everything. <laughs> really? They do. And, and they, and they took as many words as they needed to and ran them together. Yeah, one one word. Word. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Schadenfreude is one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm very insightful about humans. Well, if it's one of your favorites, you need to go to confession, Bill. <laughs> we need to be asked, to, you know, ask for the grace to uh, no longer be attached to that. Uh, That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, dear. No, I mean, yeah. I'm just happy I can pronounce it. I, I yeah. Like, I, like anything in German. I, I have to admit, I have a hanging, Bill, from what you were saying earlier, like, you know, the, the, the shooting in Indianapolis, which I you know, I'm from central Indiana. I feel like I should know more about it, but I'm just like, I just have enough on my plate. Honestly, I have not gone into researching that incident, but it, you know, mostly just, I I found it interesting that you said, you know, you do talked about how people on, you know, whatever spot in their political spectrum or continuum, you know, take it as proof of whatever and, and use the word symbol for that. And that's, that's intriguing to me. You know, I mean, so using symbol in some sense as a synonym for the word. Well, this is an example that proves my point that I already have. And you that, only need one example, by the way, yeah. uh, to be able to uh, extrapolate oh, yeah. an entire yeah. uh, worldview yeah. in, the, in that scenario. Label. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, think about how many, I mean, to take it back to uh, Catholicism, I mean, we could come up with stats of like abuse or we could come up with stats of, you know, how many people 
uh, experience some kind of, you know, negative anything with like when trying to reach out to a parish off, you can come up with the stats of that. But a person who wants to leave will say, all priests are like this. Right. Or they'll say, all churches are like this, or all religious people are like this. As a matter of fact, it, there's a corollary on this, by the way, in politics, like all liberals are like this, right? Oh, yeah. All conservative, all right, you know, right wingers are like this. All, uh, you know, lefties are like X, right? Um, yeah. And when you do that, you symbolize an entire people. Heaven forbid you ever get off of your keyboard and like go meet one. Right. right? Exactly. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I mean, it, it allows you to to basically just become intellectually lazy about an entire swath of humanity. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's so stupid. So I'm not even going to I don't want to implicate this person because I was uh, actually, it doesn't matter if I implicate them for ideological reasons. I just don't want to get in their personal life here. But they had a situation where someone in their family had become um, pregnant unexpectedly and they were posting on Facebook. Uh, and this is a people who, if I were to say this person's name, people would be like, that's a very well-spoken, reasonable Catholic, you know, Orthodox Mm. faithful person. And this person was, you know, frustrated because they were wanted to be consistently pro-life across the board. And this family member, they wanted to figure out, you know, how do we do a great job of helping this person welcome this life into the world and support them? Mm. And, someone who was presumably pro-life or would they, they would have said they were pro-life if you'd asked them was ripping into the unchastity of this family members act and saying, um, you know, a person like that shouldn't be surprised when something happens, if they're living, blah, 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 blah. And somebody's like, well, don't you want this person to experience the love? And I, I said something to the effect. I don't probably not as eloquent. Like, um, isn't this like an opportunity for us to like show compassion and love and mercy and, you know, maybe be a witness. And the person's first comment on my response was you're a Democrat, aren't you? I'm like, what? what? Um, But which elicited a a lot of humor for me, but it was like a way of saying, if I can categorize you, I don't have to take anything you say seriously. You may have a, But here's the thing about that. It is, I would say, pretty hard to be right about absolutely everything. Gosh, Um, isn't it though? (laughs) But here's, but it is damn near impossible to be wrong about absolutely everything. Yes, also true. Like, it's hard to be right all the time, but it is impossible to be wrong about everything all the time. Um, Yeah. So, that's all I want to say to that guy. Right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But but, but the fact of the matter is, is, you know, how easily do we just say, well, I don't have to listen to anything that person says, or I don't have to take into account anything that person says, when in fact that person probably obeys traffic laws and wants their kids to, you know, grow up and get good jobs. And like, turns out we agree on 99% of life, uh, but it's just the political part that we've got issues with each other over. Right. Right. Yeah. That's part of the real underlying pain of the cancel culture. People are too easily canceled for something they say, or even for a mistaken 
comment, but these are real flesh and blood human beings whose lives are far, far beyond something that they write in social media. Yeah. yeah well, think about, I mean, we, th- we always think about the cancel culture in terms of like celebrities and politicians. Yeah. Think about people who grow up, um, who are coming of age in social media right now watching all this. Yeah. Like, what do they say? What do they do? Like, um, whatever is safe. Yeah. But what's safe, right? Yeah. Because um, how do we know that what's socially acceptable to say now won't be completely socially unacceptable in two years, right? There's all these people who, you know, were joking about how like, oh, you'll ne- you'll never be in trouble for saying that men can't be pregnant, like you know, and now you can get in very much trouble for saying men can't be pregnant now. Depends on who you are. Depends on the circumstance. Depends on who's watching. Right. Yeah. It depends I, on what kind of job you're trying to get. Right. Yeah. Um, and who knows what's okay to say now that won't be okay down the road. Uh, yeah. and, and again, I'm not, it, 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 it's not merely, I mean, I think we talk about it all the time in like the gender questions, but it happens all the time in the church. Right. Like it's odd. Like how many times somebody will come to me over something I said on the radio and they're like, assume like all these things about where I stand liturgically, where I stand um, in terms of like which bishops I'm uh, okay with or not okay with, like based on like some phrase that I wasn't even thinking about. Yeah. Right. Um, It is amazing how every culture, here's the thing. Everybody's against totalitarianism and fascism and cancel culture until they get like a tiny taste of power. Right. And <laughs> they start figuring out how can I crush people with this because um, they deserve it anyway. Because they disagree with right. me, so they must be wrong. Yeah, think of, and it may be the, the good I could do. But I'm not God. Power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That's exactly. ultimately the, the yeah. challenge to realize that we're not God. And the and getting back to the. Uh, Eucharistic thing, it's our chance to really drill that home into our brains that we're not God by realizing with total power and profundity, hey, there is a God and he's amongst us right now. Yeah. And what's he doing? He's holding still wow. uh, up front, allowing saints and idiots and leaders and nobodies and billionaires and homeless people just go up there. Yeah. And like eat him. Great. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, that's kind of the most stunning aspect of the Eucharist that the God of the universe would like allow this. He would open the door for the possibility of that kind of desecration, that kind of level of being ignored. Yeah. Um, that willingness to be handled by, you know, heretics and sinners and people who just had a bad week or people who aren't paying attention like um and and and, you know again too if we were to just pay attention to what's going on in the mass like we would we would get that right because i I mean i remember the first line that really hit me at the mass when i was coming into the church the first because i'd heard it a million times um but i'd never heard it in this particular context and that was um the line that comes from jesus speaking to the centurion um, and, uh, saying he'll come to his house and centurion says, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a man in charge. 
I understand that you are in charge too. You're a man of authority. So I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word yeah. and my servant will be healed. Right. And when we pray that in the mass, the, the way that I learned it as I was coming in is that, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Right. I remember thinking like, that's what a powerful thing to pray right before you receive the Eucharist. It's a reminder of where you stand in this picture. Um, Nobody, none of us is there because we, we were good boys this week and we deserve it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Deserve is not a relationship we can possibly have with our creator. No. It's just not, not a thing. It couldn't, there's nothing, nothing that would add up to that. Yeah. But he's, he's got to say the word, right? Right. Yeah. He's got to say the word. Yeah. You've just cast light on the line, um, we give you thanks for your great glory. That's one of the lines in the Gloria, the new glorious uh, wording mm-hmm. that I didn't really, we give you thanks for your great glory. I guess it's because, yeah, but God's, we're, th- we're thankful that God's glory humbles us. <laughs> yeah. 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 What's the, uh, what's the other line um, where, uh, where it says something about, um, we're talking about the saints, and, and it's one of the Eucharistic prayers, I think, where it says, "By crowning their merits, you crown their you crown your own gifts." Right? Hmm. Like even yeah. the holiness of the saints isn't the isn't because yeah. the saints are like really good at stuff, right? Even the fact that they achieved that sanctity was itself a gift from God. By crowning their merits, He crowned His own gifts. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you have that you've not received? Nothing. I yeah. mean, yeah. Every everything but, we but have, we got from somewhere. But that goes to kind of the heart of, I think, an underlying sort of paradigm shift that that um, has to happen. I mean, with a lot of people, but I'm a, maybe I'm just like sensitive to being an American where, yeah. you know, I've been raised in this whole world where it's like you can have anything you want as long as you work hard enough for it. Right. Or, yeah. you know, all these people. It usually comes from from rich entitled people who have trust funds who say, well, you know, I mean, anybody can work hard and get to, you know, become rich. I'm like, well, but you didn't, <laughs> you know, like, um, I got a, you know, you got a loan for like a couple million dollars from your dad. And that's how you did this business. It's not like you right. started from scratch. Similar, so, uh, but there is, there is this idea that, you know, if you dream it, you know, you can achieve it. And the, uh, the whole, idea of the Eucharist is like, no, if you offer it back to God, he will give it back to you. Um, which is a very different kind of paradigm than so many as have, have been formed in as, as Americans. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of us discerning what direction we should go rather than, yeah. Or even the idea of stewardship, right? Because stewardship implies that it's a different concept than ownership, right? A steward yeah is on property that does not belong to him, taking care of things that do not belong to him. Um, and as stewards, you have a duty to care for something that is not yours so that you can give it back to the person who it truly belongs to in the best yeah. condition possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Improved if possible. Yeah. Like the talents. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's like the, the way that I mean, I think it was Obama. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm probably the least politically astute of the three of us. I'm certain I am. But you know, he was raked over the coals for the the you didn't build that comment, and you know, not entirely unjustifiable. Uh, technically, but, he was right, by the way. <laughs> exactly. But 
You can't I mean, be wrong about everything all the time, Paul. That's right. It's that's impossible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was, did he have the right, you know, person or people or entities in mind as the ones, you know, who gave the person what they had in order to build it with? You know, maybe, maybe not. And we could haggle through the details of that, too. But, I mean, everything is a gift. I mean, that's a, everything that's a principle. Is. Of, yeah. Uh, but, but, again, it comes back to, you know, what's funny is that a lot of people who weren't paying attention to the U S bishops com- conversation about all this as they were um, putting it together, they all thought it was like a meeting about which politicians they were going to deny the Eucharist. Right. right? Instead it was like, uh, you know, the, all the conversation was about this right here. Like, why don't people understand? Like this is a real life crisis in our church that like, yeah. there are people who go to the mass every week who don't understand this. That's right. Um, I mean, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a big deal, but, but even in the conversations that were about um, the politicians and, and, and all of that, uh, right up until Archbishop Cordelione said what he did about Pelosi that got all the headlines, right up until then, every bishop was saying not how do we prevent these people from receiving the Eucharist, but they were saying you should not present yourself for the Eucharist. Even up to that yeah. last moment, it was always like – you examine your conscience. It is yeah. your responsibility to discern whether or not you need to be coming up uh, for communion, yeah. um, which again is kind of an awesome responsibility. Like if the pastor's up there deciding you get the Eucharist, you don't get the Eucharist in some senses, <clears throat> that allows me to be lazy and just let right. the pastor figure out whether I'm good or not. If the pastor turns around and says to me, examine your conscience, yeah, then suddenly – um, I have a significant role to play in all this. And I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if there ought not to be a disclaimer at every mass <laughs> you know, that says like some of you guys may not realize this, but you're playing with fire by coming up here. Yeah. And you ought to examine your conscience and, and see if you really believe what the church believes about this. And if not, there ain't, there ain't no shame in staying in your pew and letting people trip over your knees as right. they get as they scoot out. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I guess the coming up to the front with your arms folded over your chest has kind of gone by the wayside, but at least in my yeah. little corner of the universe. But it was a lot better than not, you know. Yeah, receiving. But even with that too, like in some ways, uh, when I see someone and I've got to like. They scoot their knee, you know, the side scoot to the, of the knee, and you're like, you got to scoot past the knee as you like, you know, yeah. sort of like sidewalk past them a little bit. Yeah. Like, if someone's staying in the pew, uh, you know, it all it suddenly pricks my conscience a little bit. Um, you know, I, in in that like split second, I wonder, is this a new person? Should I talk to him after mass and see if, uh, okay. you know, see where they're at? Uh, but the, then the other thing is like, well is this a really bad person who did something terrible, you know, this weekend they can't go up. Uh, but then the third thought that comes and dominates is, is this a really good person who gets this a lot better than I do and realizes the gravity of all of this? Um, yeah. And should I maybe be thinking a little harder myself right now <laughs> about, yeah. about my week? Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Wow. Well, there is a lot to be thinking about in all of this. So, Maybe we should let you go, Matt. I, I, we, uh, th- I, we could go on forever. This is a great conversation. 
I, feel, I don't feel like we solved anything, but I feel like we talked about some interesting stuff. Well, maybe it's just one or two more Q's and A's. We'll solve it. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if Bill and I could just solve problems by having people on this podcast, I mean, we should both quit our jobs and just do that a lot. Wow, there's a lot of money in there's a lot of money in solving church problems. Said nobody ever. <laughs> Said nobody ever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we could become uh, a Franciscan, or uh, for all I'm Bill already is a Franciscan. So there we go. Oh, we just, that's like, yeah, third order. Yeah, we just yeah. need to we need to beg, beg a few crusts and maybe take a few vitamins and then just keep trudging trudging right along solving problems. But that's not exactly how it works. But hopefully, no. it's still valuable anyway. We'll all keep trudging. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to uh, short circuit this. And Paul, uh, uh, any last thoughts? I just want to thank Matt. Yeah, I really want to thank you, Matt, for coming on our, our little podcast here. We really, really appreciate the chance to, to talk to you about these things. And, and, you know, and the milkshake duck, of course, will be the thing that I'm going to this conversation, yeah. just so you know. But um, there's something in it for everybody, I think. So. There's a term for everything at this point. There That's right. Well, let's turn about, let's turn about fair play after all the times that I've, uh, you know, Put uh, put Bill up, you know, at uh, odd hours of the morning and just expose <laughs> him to whatever might come out of his mouth. That's right. At 6 a.m. Yes. To a, a national public audience That's scrutinizing right. every word. You know, it's only fair. Able, it's only you're fair. able to think that clearly every day, starting at 6 a.m. So uh, <laughs> I've been there's off. a reason I bring guests on, so I don't have to That's right. be the one. There you go. Who says all the stuff? There's right. a method to the madness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess we will wrap it up there. And uh, thank you again so much for, for coming on our show and, uh, and having us great conversation. Hey, really appreciate it. And uh, humbled by the opportunity. Thanks guys for, uh, for all you do. And thank likewise, Thanks, and we'll man. be, we'll be in touch. See you on the radio. See you on That's the right. Radio. See you on the radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.